I am here with Paige Harden. Paige, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Sam. So uh, just a few notes to our um, listeners that we're, we're kind of jumping on this podcast because we had a a bit of a Twitter collision and then um, a very uh, friendly person reached out to both of us to see if he or she could midwife a, a better conversation. So there's at least one thing that's relevant there is that, you know, I, I haven't sent you the gear I usually send guests to get uh, as close to perfect audio as we can get. So we're, we're doing this over Skype and um, apologies for any Skype-like glitches in, in your sound. Before we jump in, can you summarize your, your academic background and, and just what you've been focusing on as, as a scientist? Yeah, so I am a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, where I've been since graduate school. And I run a research lab there that is focused on genetic influences and how they shape child and adolescent development. So one part of that is on cognition and academic achievement. And then the other part of that is on mental health with a, with a particular focus on antisocial behavior problems, delinquency, and crime. So I do twin studies and then a variety of measured DNA studies with using polygenic scores, which maybe we might dive into later. Mm-hmm. And then in the past two years, I've been writing a book. I'm about to be finished with it, although there's still a long road. I'm realizing until a book is a physical yeah. object in the universe between finishing the manuscript and it being published, which is called The Genetic Lottery. So it's on the role of genes in shaping social inequalities mm-hmm. and is really trying to reshape that conversation away from thinking of genetics as an enemy of equality or equality hinging on genetic sameness to really think about given our current landscape, particularly in the U.S., how could we use genetic information and what we've learned from genetic studies to, to think about what it means when we say equality. So that's been my passion project for the last couple of years. And I'm, you know, I'm excited to talk about that in relation to, I think, the many issues that I think we could touch base on today. Oh, that's great. If memory serves, you'll have exactly 11 months to wait once you, you finish your book and, and <laughs> to see it born. Yeah. An increasingly yeah. ridiculous 11 months given the nature of, of media these days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's such an, it feels very antiquated in relation to the immediacy of everything else that's happening right now. Well, you know, lucky for you, inequality is still going to be a problem after 11 months. So you will not be less relevant, I'm sure. So there's something I'd like to ask at the outset here, because I'm pretty confident that you and I are coming to this conversation from very different places, just with very different frames around what it means to have this conversation. I think we were, our glitch on Twitter was born of of that difference. So at the outset, I'd love to get your impression of why we're speaking now and what, just what's happened between us. Because, you know, we've never met, as far as I know. I don't think we've ever bumped into each other at a conference or anything. And yet we're entangled in some way now. So from your point of view, how did we get here? And, and what is your motive in having this conversation? Yeah. So, I mean, I entangled is a good word for it. You know, spooky action at a distance. I the origin of this is, you know, you had a podcast with Charles Murray, I think going on two years ago now. Yeah. And I wrote an article with my former PhD advisor, Eric Turkheimer, and uh, social psychologist Dick Nisbet in Vox that was 
critical of Murray's portrayal of the state of the science is how I viewed that article. And then there was reactions to that article and then our response to those reactions. There was yet another piece on the same topic by Ezra Klein. There was multiple conversations between you and Klein about whether our Vox piece, the substance of it and, and whether soliciting it and publishing it was in good faith. And honestly, the 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 aftermath of that, you know, publishing of the Vox piece never sat well with me. I think in many ways, the parts of it I wrote in my head as I was writing it was very much me as a scientist responding to what I thought Murray was portraying inaccurately. And then I think as the article got published and sort of reverberated through social media, and, and as you know, as well as I do, that that has this weird funhouse mirror distortionate effect on conversations. It seemed that you felt criticized in a way that, to be quite honest, surprised me at kind of the intensity of it. Something was being lost in my intention and, and how it was being received. And so, you know, I kind of left that whole thing with a, that didn't go how I would have wanted it to go. And I, I don't feel like I and communicated the messages that I was intending to with the precision that I wanted to. And then fast forward to, you know, the, the most recent week, you had Robert Plowman on your podcast to talk about his new book, Blueprint. And, you know, I had what I think is a, is a very kind of social media moment in which I am responding to someone else's comment on, you know, what, what are we all going to do as parents around school closures? And someone responded with, oh, well, you need to listen to Sam Harris's new podcast because then you'll realize that going to school doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And it was, it, was, it, was such an, it was such an alarming tweet. And with some backstory that, you know, I've known Robert Plumman for quite a long time. I respect him immensely as a scientist, but the, the role of whether or not schools and parents make a difference is, is a topic about which we've had multiple conversations with public and private and about which we disagree. So there really was just kind of like full circle moment in which I felt like, oh, are we are we back here talking about someone was on Sam Harrison pod, podcast and and how that's how that information is being received by your audience and how I'm responding to it. And then I, I have to be really honest, I was really respo- surprised when you responded on Twitter. I think I had this idea in my head that your platform is so enormous and there are so many people responding to you at any one time that the extent to which what I was saying about not even in that moment, I wasn't even, as you know, responding to the podcast, but so much to this, you know, anonymous person who was saying, oh, you should listen to it because then you will realize that schools don't matter. Just really, you know, it was really upsetting to me in that moment. And it really kind of kicked off our, I think, sense, at least I have the sense of sort of having unresolved, unresolved, in, to go back to your original word, unresolved entanglement, that we're both interested in these issues, that the conversation really was not between you and me the last time around the Vox article. And I think maybe something was lost in that, in and how that played out. So I'm, I'm hoping that by having this conversation, we you know, we will each get something out of it. We will learn something about about our respective perspectives, but also that we can move forward. I mean, I'm not, I don't think that you're going to move away from being interested in these issues. And certainly I'm not. I mean, as you say, in 11 months, inequality is still going to be a problem. 
And I'd like to move forward feeling like there's a mutually respectful relationship and that wasn't what was playing out on Twitter. So that's kind of mm. where I'm, I'm really hoping this conversation goes today. Hmm. Nice, nice. Well, we, yeah, we definitely share the goal there. And I, I, another thing we share, I'm sure, given everything, everything you've just said, is, is a concern about social inequality and social cohesion and just the suffering of other people. I'm mm -hmm. sure we both want other people to thrive, both because we care about other people, but also just for purely selfish reasons. I'm sure we both would much prefer to live in a society that is filled with happy, self-actualized people. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I trust you don't like to see the sidewalks filled with homeless people any more than I do. And, I mean, again, both for the sake of the people themselves and for our own quality of life, right? So I think everyone has an interest in these issues. And so, we're, you know, everyone, whether they're thinking about it or not, has an interest in things like wealth inequality and the crazy disparities in crime and access to health care in our society and failing schools and, you know, insofar as racism remains a problem and the cause of other problems, I think you, know, you and I are both concerned about racism. I think it's safe to say, but I, I think I should say a couple of things about how I'm coming to these issues that will explain what was otherwise surprising about my reaction to your Vox piece. I, one, my reaction and my non-reaction. I mean, one, I didn't, I didn't actually answer. I didn't respond to your Vox piece. And many people thought I should have, because many people saw it as a serious scientific criticism of a conversation I had on my podcast. And, you know, I, I must say, I, I didn't view it that way. And that's why I didn't respond, among other things. And so, you know, so let me see if, let me see if I can just launch into an account of what has happened here for me and uh, to explain just what, you know, what would otherwise seem like bizarre behavior. First, I think we should distinguish two topics here. I mean, there's the scientific topic of human intelligence and, you know, differences in human abilities generally. You know, whether we explain these differences environmentally or genetically or both, all of that is interesting and consequential and important to talk about honestly. And, there, and there, there's that topic. But then, there's this sociological and political fact that it's difficult to talk about these things, right? And it's, mm -hmm. yeah. And so those are, those are two very different things. And I have been, I'm really brought to this topic mostly because of my focus on the second topic. I mean, that's certainly why I had Murray on my podcast. So, so again, just to be clear, we, we need to distinguish certain scientific topics from the fact that talking about the science, right? is rightly perceived, I think, to be professionally dangerous and personally toxic. That is, unless one yeah. is committed to maintaining a, a certain kind of political correctness, more or less at all costs here. So, so I, if I can just jump yeah, in there sure. really quickly, is, is I, I roughly agree with that division, but I think, um, and we can, come, we can circle back to this, I think failures in either make the other more difficult in the sense that like, if we can't speak, you know, openly and honestly about the science that makes doing the science harder, but I think also people, you know, our responsibility to talk about the science as clearly as possible is part of what I think of the scientists contribution to sort of keeping cancel culture at bay. Like 
So I think I agree with the division that the, we can sort of think of those two issues, but I think they do affect each other in the real world in kind of this continuous basis. Yeah, except I think you and I will draw that boundary a little differently. And I can argue about why I draw the boundary as I do, because it's, I think it's important. I think any principle other than intellectual honesty that would cause us to make certain scientific claims is very nature going to be unstable and, and prove to be a, a bad bulwark against the kind of social outcomes that I think you and I both would recoil mm-hmm. from, right? So, I, I, yeah, I, mm-hmm. think, I think we'll probably get into that. But, I mean, just again, for context, and I think I said this at the top, you, I mean, you and I were brought together by a moderator who wants to remain anonymous and inaudible in this conversation. We have someone on the line with us who uh, you know hasn't yet chimed in, but may yet chime in, and we will edit out those intrusions. This person wants to remain anonymous because they, and I'm using they to conceal gender, not to say that they are transgender, they perceive this whole topic to be so fraught that they are concerned that this might blow back on them or institutions with which they're associated. That's just a sign of the times, right? You and I just may calibrate our, we obviously calibrate our sense of the risk differently, but that's the nature of the context in which we're having this conversation. I don't, I just want to say I don't disagree with our anonymous third participant. You know, I, I have been in the field of behavior genetics essentially my whole adult life. You know, I went to, I applied for graduate school when I was 20 years old. And so I, that sense of this thinking about how genetics relates to inequalities between people and what implications that has for our our policies for our nation our sort of our intuitions about justice and fairness is really strikes at the heart of so many issues that people feel passionately about and by virtue of being an explosive topic requires communicating about it with great care and I think if you're going to do it, you have to do it well. And to say, well, I'm willing to be interested in this issue, but I'm not going to drag a whole bunch of other people, you know, by virtue of my association with them into that, into that morass. I mean, I, I, I agree that there are potential implications, even just in terms of time for anyone being sort of associated with this conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, all of that is ultimately unnecessary. Not, not surprising but unnecessary and i think whatever political daylight we eventually land in that is stable will be born of our having discovered that this is really not a problem to talk about right and and, and that's where i'm hoping to get to but the strategies mm-hmm. i see other people using i think are bound to be ineffective and they have the the additional problem of being of creating a lot of casualties of another sort along the way. And so, yeah, so just to give you some color to my experience here, first, you know, I, you know, I'm interested in intelligence, both human and artificial, but I've never been interested in IQ per se, and I'm, I'm certainly not interested in racial differences in IQ. But I've grown extremely concerned about the way our capacity for moral panic has made it difficult to mm-hmm. have honest conversations in general about you know just all kinds of topics having nothing to do with 
with behavioral genetics or intelligence, or I mean, just across the board. And I mean, talking about religion, for instance, or differences among religions. And I really don't like scapegoating and mob justice. And this is the kind of thing one encounters on this topic. So as you said, you know, two years ago, I brought Charles Murray on my podcast for reasons around these free speech concerns, right? I mean, this was in response to his being physically attacked at Middlebury, mm -hmm. you know, a full mm -hmm. quarter century after he, he wrote his controversial book, The Bell Curve. And I can say that having that conversation with him has had a profoundly negative effect on my life, right? Now, and it's not because anything Charles said or did. And it's entirely because of what other people said and did in response to that conversation. And, uh, you know, some of that was foreseeable, uh, you know, certainly should have been foreseeable. And, you know, so I, to some degree, I consciously took this on as something that, you know, I, I just, I felt a, a moral obligation to respond to what I perceived to be both an injustice in his case and a creeping dysfunction in our intellectual life. And the fact that you have professors being assaulted on college campuses for highly distorted ideas about what they wrote 25 years ago. And you were one of the principal people who contributed to this backlash by publishing that article in Vox, right, along with, as you said, Richard Nisbet and Eric Turkheimer. Mm -hmm. And now you may not think it was a smear, but in my world, it absolutely was, right? I mean, and it gave Ezra Klein the scientific cover or the, or the seeming scientific cover to publish other smears of me and, and Murray in Vox. And it's one thing to differ about, you know, specific interpretations of data, say, but the reality is, is that that article accused me and Murray. I mean, I think you thought your emphasis was mostly on Murray, and it, and it was, but I mean, virtually every sentence, you know, I was wrapped up there as part of the problem. You accused us of peddling junk science, right? And the best interpretation of how I came out in that article was as Murray's dupe, right? Like I just, you know, I was just, I didn't understand the science and he put one over on me. But the more reasonable interpretation of the article was that I was more of a willing accomplice in the spread of dangerous and discredited ideas. And, and whatever you thought your take on on my podcast with Murray was, and whatever top spin you thought you were giving the part of the article you wrote or not, you know, and however much daylight there might be between you and, and Nisbet and Turkheimer, the net result of that article was to land me on the hate watch page at the Southern Poverty Law Center in the company of neo-Nazis and Ku Klux Klan lunatics, right? Yeah. Whether or not you thought it was a smear, in the current environment, it absolutely functioned as a smear, right? And it is, when I, you know, pinged you on Twitter the other day, what I was really responding to was, I mean, I was responding to two things. You're seeming outraged that I would, quote, platform Robert Plowman, right? And which, using the, the phrase platform in response to my putting a person who's inarguably one of the leading people in the field on my podcast, seemed bizarre to me and seemed of a piece with, with the article you had written about me and Murray. But you resurfaced your Vox article, right? Which again, in my world, mm -hmm. functions as, for people who don't get into it, people who can't 
take the time to listen to a two-hour podcast and don't have enough understanding of the topic to see, as I think I do, the mismatch between your article and what you know, I and Murray actually said in that podcast, that article functions as scientific proof, essentially, that I'm a racist asshole, or at least dangerously irresponsible in my platforming a racist asshole on my podcast. And that's just an objective statement about how this thing functions in my life. And so to see you retweet it and then take a shot at me for having, quote, platformed Robert Plowman, you got a somewhat snide response from me on Twitter. Like, <laughs> really, Paige? This is, you know, the, and you did this all without yeah. listening to the podcast with Robert Plowman? Man, that's amazing, right? So, you know, some people think I'm just being thin-skinned and, you know, I can't take criticism of my views. That's not what's happening. I, I mean, unless you see what's coming back at me on a daily basis and see the effect in my life and in the lives of others, I mean, the truth is I have taken immense pains to be uncancelable, right? And I effectively am uncancelable. So I'm an incredibly lucky person, right? I just, you know, I have very few complaints about my life, but this is definitely one. I mean, I, I recognize that because of what happened there, and in large measure because of the article you wrote, and then what Ezra Klein did with it, it may well be the case that 30, 40 years from now, when I die at the end of a long and happy life, my daughters will read that, you know, I was persistently dogged by accusations of racism or something completely insane, given what I actually feel about race and racism and what it would mean to live in a just society. And the causality of that is absolutely apparent to me, given the social forces and the social incentives mm -hmm. and the biases I see around this conversation. So, so that, that's who you were meeting on Twitter the other day. Yeah. Okay. So oh, I have a couple responses to that. And the first is just, you know, that, that helps me understand more about kind of the tenor of your response. Because thinking about it in terms of how my article, but particularly how that article was picked up and reverberated and interpret, interpreted to ultimately lead to you being, you know, clustered with neo-Nazis, you know, I, obviously I can see how that would be deeply upsetting. When I, what I feel like this brings up for me is there's, there's a kind of ironic parallel here in the sense that you're saying, you know, you wrote this thing and you didn't intend for it to, you know, lead to other people casting aspersions on me as a, you know, as a racist or as a Nazi, but it had that effect given the, the social environment that we live in and the way that journalism works, you know, so don't you bear some responsibility for how that that criticism was used? Well, let me, let me just clarify one thing. It's not yeah. as inadvertent as all that, because, I mean, honestly, the only... I, mean, I should just give you a little more color for yeah. what, what I think about the article. I mean, the, on, the only way to interpret the article is that Murray and I, again, it's more Murray. I mean, I'm sort of showcasing his views, but, you know, I was also signing off on many of the things he was claiming. And, you know, you made that clear in the article. But the frame you gave it is that these are dangerous, well-known to be discredited views. I mean, it wasn't totally coherent because in one paragraph you guys say, you know, the truth is there are many scientists who, whose views are much closer to Murray's than to ours. 
and we don't even have the same views, right? So like you, you did sort of pay lip service to the idea that there is a continuum of views about now. Now we're talking about the the heritability of intelligence and just how and and, and group differences in intelligence here. You know, that's the most toxic topic. So you, you paid a little lip service to it, but basically the general thrust of the article was and that this is junk science and it's dangerous, it's irresponsible, and it is of a piece with a long history of awful justifications for racists, you know, pseudoscientific justifications for mm -hmm. racism and bigotry and slavery and all the rest. And we're now part of that. And so there's, there's no way to say, I mean, I hear where you're going. You think that I'm trying to hold you responsible for the completely inadvertent interpretations that some people have made of your article, but it's most of it is there in the article. And there is no commitment to racism and no cover for white supremacy given in my framing of Murray. Or honestly, even, I mean, we, this is what we'll get into this, but even in what I understand to be Murray's views. So, I mean, I think this is, yeah. So, I mean, just to, for our listeners who have not read the article or listened to the podcast, you know, I think, and, and also just to give a little bit of backstory is I think many times people who respond to Charles Murray's basic thesis, which is that one IQ tests have predictive validity for things we care about, that individual differences in intelligence are substantially heritable, and that group differences between racial ethnic groups and IQ are, are likely genetic in origin. And, and then four, that because of that, things will be, you know, the, the kind of, we have some pessimism about the, the possibilities of social policy. Go back to three for one second, because this is a crucial distortion in your article that was just unnecessary. And I mean, it's there for anyone who wants to go back and read your article and then listen to the two-hour podcast. And at the time, I assumed most people would do that and they'd be able to do that. But of course, that's a ridiculous assumption. And most people just either read the article and didn't take the time to listen to the podcast or, you know, having listened to the podcast, they read the article and they couldn't remember what, what was in the podcast. And most important, people are so desperate to believe that Charles Murray is a racist monster and that this whole topic of racial differences in IQ is radioactive for very good reason that they're overwhelmingly biased just to accept the claims you made in that article at face value. But the claim you just made, that Murray puts, I think it was your point number three, you just, just enumerated, that Murray thinks this explanation for racial differences in IQ is very likely to be mostly genetic. That is just untrue, right? It's untrue in the, the bell curve. It's untrue in the podcast. At several places in that podcast, we spelled out why even if intelligence is 80% heritable, say, you could not say that the differences between groups was due to genetics. In fact, it could be 100% environmental. I and mean, I think in the podcast, I, I use the analogy to height. You know, you could have a, an island of people who have the genes to be as tall as the Dutch, but if they were malnourished, you know, and you, and you found them to be shorter than the Inuit, it would be 100% due to environment. And so we, we made those caveats. And when I made that particular caveat, Charles Murray, his first sentence was, that's a crucial point, right? I mean, the irony is that there's a tiny substantive difference between you 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in my understanding of your view, and again, I don't know what distinguishes you from, from Nisbet and Turkheimer on this point, if anything, but the only difference between what you're arguing for and what Murray is arguing for is what we might call a default hypothesis with respect to the role that genes play in group difference, right? And this is actually something that Richard Hare brought out. So Richard Hare, who I don't know, I've only spoken to him once, and, and I you know, never met him, and, and he unsolicited responded to your Vox piece, right? Here, Richard Hare is the editor-in-chief mm -hmm. of the journal Intelligence, and he's the author of the book The Neurobiology of Intelligence, right? And so he's a person who's in this field, and he came out of the woodwork in response to your Vox piece. And Ezra Klein, I mean, just, just so people understand how the sausage of, in my view, defamation gets made, Ezra Klein refused to publish that response from Hare, uh, you know, as though he had run out of pixels on the Vox website. And then Richard Hare wrote a follow-up response to your second piece in Vox, which also Vox refused to publish. But the point he made is that for people in the field, in the field of intelligence, and you may have a you clearly have a different view of this, but this was his view, again, unsolicited, is that the default hypothesis is that for a highly heritable trait individually, like intelligence, it's a safe default assumption that genes will play some role, some, not not the majority role, just some involvement in group differences. And this was Murray's point in the podcast. Otherwise, to have a different default assumption. To say that we're going to default to it's a hundred percent environment and genes play absolutely no role whatsoever, right? You just it seems like is an assumption you need to argue for. I mean, this is a a minuscule difference in terms of in I terms of what someone's pl finding plausible. I don't think it's a minuscule difference. I don't think it's a minuscule difference. Do you not think it's a minuscule difference because of your judgment of scientific plausibility or because of your concern for the social effects of one assumption versus the other? Because of the science, I would say because of the depth of evidence for it as a scientific hypothesis. So it, this is, a, I mean, this is a really, I think this is a really, really unintuitive point. You know, we can, we can talk about how if within a group, differences between people are caused by genes and differences between groups could still be due to the environment. But I think lurking behind there, there's still this intuition that, well, but how plausible is that? And if there were genetic differences, you know, they would obviously work in the same direction that we see, you know, in the, in the case of phenotypic differences. Right. So I think it sounds it sounds so, so plausible to call it a default, to say, well, we know that genes cause intelligence differences within within white people. We know that there's phenotypic differences on average in IQ between racial groups. Shouldn't our like our kind of running null hypothesis, you know, our prior given given the absence of any good evidence either way, shouldn't our prior be that the genes are also involved in the group differences? And I think that that, that, that idea of what our prior should be is, 
really based on like a very basic statistical misunderstanding. I mean, according to Richard Hare, this is the default hypothesis among intelligence researchers. I mean, it's actually named that. I'd like to give a a concrete example that I think illustrates this. So, you know, recently there was a paper in BioArchive by a team of people that do ancient DNA studies, which was finding that one of the early genetic loci associated with having a particularly bad response to COVID is something that we seem to have gotten from our Neanderthal ancestors. So, you know, everything in COVID genetics is very preliminary right now. Like the paper, I think, is still an archive. It hasn't been published yet. But if you look at the paper, you see, okay, well, here's a genetic variant that makes people more likely to develop bad complications from COVID and to die from COVID. And then if you look at the worldwide distribution of that gene, you'll see that it's it's absent in Africans because, you know, they do not have a significant proportion of Neanderthal genetic ancestry. So you have an example of within people of European ancestry, we can look and we can say, here's a gene that's associated with this response. And then if you looked at the phenotypic differences in, you know, bad outcomes from COVID across groups of people, you might, using Hire's default hypothesis logic, say, well, genes cause, you know, this, this gene causes bad COVID response in white people. There's so much worse uh, medical outcomes in Black people. It must be that part of this difference between them is genetically caused. And what's more, it's because they have more of this genetic risk that we're seeing. But in fact, they have none of it, right? It's like, it is, it, the genetic differences that we're seeing within people of European ancestry cannot explain at all the differences we're seeing between white people and black people in terms of their medical outcomes. And what's more, it goes in the opposite direction, as you would expect, based on the within-person genetic differences. So that's not specific to a discussion of intelligence. That's not specific to a discussion of IQ. It's a really, really, really basic statistical point, which is that if you know the direction of an association within a group, you don't know anything about whether that plays out between groups, not even in the sign of that direction, right? So it could be that, you know, let's say actually Africans are at a genetic advantage for cognitive ability that's been swamped by, you know, environmental Mm. risks and diversity. And I think once you realize that that's not just, that's not just about IQ, that's about, you know, that was labeled as the ecological fallacy. That's like a basic statistical point. You really, where I've come to is that we have no information no default about what is the relationship between differences in genetic ancestry and the causes of these these cognition differences that we see on average between groups. And in the absence of any data, any really good data, the only priors we have are are informed by what, right? And 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 so that's why I think the prior that that the if there that there is a genetic difference and what's more it works in this particular direction is is not informed by the science 
And that's the part that I really, I don't think that's a minor disagreement. So I think if we look at the evidence for how much does IQ statistically predict life outcomes in people, there is a huge amount of evidence there. And people might not like to hear it, but we can, we can talk objectively about what that means. When we're talking about what is a reasonable prior in terms of our explanations for group differences in performance and standardized IQ tests, I don't think I don't agree with the framing that the what has been called the default hypothesis is actually a reasonable prior, because I think that's based on a really basic misunderstanding of what knowledge within groups tells us about about causes between groups. Mm. So I, you know, I think that's tricky to, to describe because default hypothesis sounds like such a reasonable, you know, reasonable norm. But I don't I don't think it's agnostic enough about what we what we know. Okay. So now I'm going to I mean all of that's interesting and useful and for me again it it falls into the bin of being what I think is a very minor difference in scientific intuition which we can continue to drill down on. I think it's interesting. It's actually it's contained in the analogy I just gave to height. You know, if we find an an island of short people, they may in fact have the genes that point in the opposite direction, right? Entirely. They may have the Dutch, you know, super mm-hmm. tall genes. They could just be malnourished, right? So, you know, the environment completely swamps their genetic advantage for height. And obviously, we could be in that circumstance with respect to the differences between black and white IQ scores in the US or any other invidious group difference we seem to have found through psychometrics. That's totally true. And I I really think Charles Murray would admit that if put that way. But in terms of it being a different intuition scientifically about, you know, how what the default should be, it seems to me a fairly minor point. And it's a point, most importantly, it's a point about which totally well-intentioned people can disagree, right? And, you know, often Murray just leaves it as he's agnostic, right? And, and it just seems a safer assumption that genes are, are involved. And again, you're, you're right. He's assuming the valence there, that the genes are making mm-hmm. the contribution in that, in the direction of a disadvantage. So I think, I mean, I, this is probably, I think, where we, maybe where the, the you know, kernel of our core disagreement lies, mm-hmm. which is that. Murray is saying I'm agnostic and is sort of saying I'm agnostic about a range of possibilities, which often when he talks doesn't include the possibility that there is a genetic advantage, quote unquote, to people of African ancestry. I'm saying, you know, there's just really no good science about this. And so I think where the more major disagreement is, is what are then what is the the risk to benefit ratio of spending time t- you know pontificating about that possibility in the absence of any real scientific data so i think you know i think if you if you have one set of values i think it's well we should just be able to talk openly and honestly about you know any possibility that exists and this is one possibility of the world and we don't have any good data to suggest that it's true but let's speculate and and it's really kind of our ability to talk 
about any possibility that might exist in the world is kind of prioritized. I think where other people might also have not a different value, but weight a different value is what are the harms potentially done by that speculation? And I think for a lot of people, they think about, well, that is a speculation that, you know, if even if it doesn't necessarily feed into, is it at least consistent with some really ugly racist views about the inferiority of, of Black people in particular? And so I think, you know, I think some people push back on this, well, why should we talk about something about which we are scientifically agnostic that just so happens to reinforce a really ugly stereotype? I think for me personally, I'm, I am frustrated by the amount of attention that this topic eats up mm. when we have so much good genetic data and so many exciting methodological developments that are on much better scientific ground that we could be talking about how do we use those to improve people's lives. But instead, you know, everyone gets kind of sucked into this black hole of like speculating about racial differences when we don't really have ready data or, or methods to solve that problem. And so I just think there's a real, I think there's a real opportunity cost given how, you know, in your own words, fraught and explosive this topic is to paying so much attention to something that we can't and haven't solved well with data at the expense of talking about all the things we, we could, you know, solve with data that we do have good scientific information on. So I think, you know, my risk-benefit calculus on what good versus what harm is done by letting people, you know, speculate wildly in the absence of scientific data on the sources of black white IQ differences, I think I really, I think I come down on a different risk benefit calculus than you do about that. Okay. Well, so there's a lot contained in the phrase, letting people yeah. speculate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I said it, yeah. I thought that's kind of like a strange, yeah, you that know, is, it's like, yeah, that is strange, Mr. Orwell. <laughs> you and I totally agree about the opportunity costs here, but I, I view them as coming from a different quarter because I have no interest in IQ, and I, have, I really have no interest in IQ differences among groups, right? So it's not for an intrinsic interest in this topic that I have suffered massive opportunity costs in getting sucked into, into this yeah. black yeah. hole, right? What I am concerned about is the quality of our public conversation about everything and the defenestrations of good people for bad reasons. and the voxification of science and journalism that leads to witch hunts and blasphemy tests and scapegoating and all the rest. And what I think I'm seeing here is a failure to distinguish scientific disagreement from the pressures of politics and, and social activism. And I'm seeing most people, even most journalists and scientists, pin their hopes for political equality and social cohesion and good outcomes, the hope for a good society, on our ability to either avoid certain topics until the end of the world or pretend that certain plausible assumptions are, in fact, 
not plausible, but rather just so outrageously unlikely and socially damaging that a person could only entertain them based on a desire to live in a society that isn't good, right? That is racist. So the assumption that people come away with, you know, whether you consciously felt this about me and, and Murray or not, I would be happy to know, but the moralizing topspin of the article you and your co-authors wrote, and certainly the effect in the world is that it suggests that only someone who's committed to maintaining social inequality, right? Only someone who is selfishly committed to maintaining the unfair advantages of their group based on racism. Again, this is something that the onus is on white people here. Strangely, it's not on Asians, right, who compare favorably to everybody on this particular metric. Only someone who's just morally deranged by our modern lights could be tempted to take what Charles Murray says about race and IQ seriously or could have a default hypothesis that suggests that, well, we don't know what genes are doing here, but they're probably playing a role, and they're probably playing a role in the observed direction of disparity. And I think that's, one, deeply unfair, but worse, I think it's dishonest with respect to the actual nature of the scientific differences. I think it will be bowled over by coming developments in genetics and in other sciences. So I think it's unstable. I think it's not actually a safe space to occupy, given the coming advances in science. And, and this is my big picture concern. I think we will, this is my default hypothesis that applies to everything across the board, not just intelligence. If you could list the top hundred things that we care about in human beings, you know, intelligence would be one. I don't know where it would be on the list, but somewhere in the top half certainly. But list everything we care about, you know, the big five personality traits and susceptibility to violence and shyness and compassion and everything, sense of humor, right? I think virtually all of these things on the list will be dictated to some significant degree by genetics, in the case of individuals, and to some significant degree by environment. But the thing that will pose a political concern for people is that if we had ways of testing, ways of measuring all of these traits, and in many cases we do, and we decided to exhaustively test differences between groups, we would find differences. It would be an absolute miracle if the mean value for the hundred things we most cared about were the same for every conceivable group of human beings. And again, it wouldn't even matter how you pick these groups. These groups could be self-identified. They could be Yankee fans versus Red Sox fans. They could be the Norwegians. They, they could be people who think they're Norwegian but are wrong about it. We could chop up humanity in every conceivable way and test these groups, and we're going to find mean differences. So my view politically is we need to be able to absorb that fact and realize that it doesn't fucking matter right? It really yeah. doesn't matter. So I, there's so much to respond to in that. So I think the first is, you, you know, you, you surely have note or noticed that the second box article, we didn't co-author it. We, we divided it into separate sections. And that is because it, the three of us couldn't agree on, you know, what is going to be the scientific way forward. And I think some people really 
fear the the coming onslaught of good genomic data on diverse world populations because they fear that it will allow people to test hypotheses that like things about racial differences in in cognitive ability or personality traits. I personally welcome the onslaught of the data. I don't share your prior about what we'll find. But I also, if I think about lessons from complex trait genetics in the last 20 years, is that it has worked out really like no one has expected. You know, you can read papers from 20 years ago in which they think, oh, well, maybe autism will be caused by as many as 10 different genes. You know, people were just laughably wrong in, in mm. many of their predictions about how complex trait genetics was going to go. And so I think surveying, you know, looking forward, you know, my prior is that we're really bad at guessing how this is going to work. My second thought is that... Can I clarify one thing there? Yeah. So, so what you're saying, I don't think you said it, but we had this prior that there would be single gene or few gene differences contributing to mm -hmm. traits, but in virtually every case, we're talking about hundreds and more likely thousands of genes making tiny contributions to various yes. traits. Yes. And so, I mean, this is, you know, this wasn't a hypothesis that people took lightly. They really believed it. You know, they planned studies saying, okay, well, you know, if we, if it's like 10 genes then we can get away with studying this many people. And so we're going to design our whole study around that idea. And it really was a major course correction in genetics to realize that to, to, to use your language, the things that we care about, that we value in humans in terms of their behavior in terms of their personality, in terms of their cognitive abilities, all of these are referred to as complex traits, in part because the genetics of them are so complex. And I think the lesson of the last 20 years has been that many of our intuitions about how this was going to work out uh, were wrong. You know, if you'd asked someone in 2005, for which trait are they going to find genes that are reliably associated first? Educational attainment or depression? There's no way. I really don't think that anyone would have guessed educational attainment over depression, right? Like that seems like depression is a psychiatric disorder and educational attainment is this really complex social phenomenon. But it was the educational attainment folks that really took this power problem and this polygenicity problem very seriously from the beginning. So all of that to say, I think my my prior about how group differences work is different than yours but more than anything i feel like we really don't know how it's going to work out that being said one thing that I, I i do agree with you very wholeheartedly and you know in in many ways this is the thesis of my book which is that i think it is a grave mistake to stake claims for equity or inclusion or justice or equality on the absence of genetic difference. I think this equation of the, the best of all possible worlds is one in which people are genetically the same and genetically the same in ways that matter to us. And, you know, equality is impossible in, in the absence of that. I think that's a really, really dangerous place to be. So I, 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 hmm. I very much agree with you on that point. I think the question is, what creates 
what creates the highest quality discourse, intellectual discourse, now in the absence of that kind of coming onslaught of genomic data and you know, letting people speak was totally the wrong term because obviously we we want people to be speaking and exchanging ideas. I think the question in my mind, and I don't, you know, I, I'm really curious to hear what your own thoughts about this, which is that it's not, you know, Murray's not calling into like his local AM radio station. He's on a podcast that is that is listened to by I don't know what the average circulation for one of your podcasts is, but it's large, right? So I think it's not just letting people speak. It's if we survey the landscape of people who are doing interesting work at the intersection of genetics and intelligence and social inequality, and as you say, the things that people care about, what is, what is, lost to the quality of our discourse to promote those who really are spending, I think, a lot of time talking about the conclusions for which we have the least good evidence. And I think that is, that's, that's, that's where I, um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your own thoughts. So our long-suffering moderator just chimed in with a, um, a very interesting sidebar conversation or inviting us to a sidebar conversation, which I think I'm going to decline to have with you, Paige, and I think you're happy about that, but just reminding us that it's not just a matter of a default hypothesis. There's a lot of other intersecting work here that people like Murray and you know his deceased co-author in the bell, on the bell curve, Hernstein, would tend to refer to to cash out their intuition that genes play a role here and it may well be valenced in the direction of accounting for some of the the outcome differences. And neurobiology is involved, and twin studies, and adoption studies, and there's a lot to perhaps debate Mm -hmm. about the quality of that evidence. I want to just go back to my default assumption here, because I think it's, I'm not quite sure you took all of my meaning there. I, I am agnostic as to whether or not genes play a huge role in every case, but for the hundred things we care about in a person, given how much we are learning about the role that genes play in making us who we are physically and psychologically, no surprise because, you know, the brain as a physical system is the basis of our minds, we will find that genes are involved for virtually everything to some degree. And in many cases, it will be the difference that really makes most of the difference. And this is true for individuals, and we will find it true for groups. And the truth is, even when we find that the differences are born of environment, that isn't a safe place to stand either, right? I mean, so any comparisons between environments for group differences is politically fraught and seems to be invidious. If you're talking about one culture being better than another for producing high IQ, say. Well, also, I think, yeah, Yeah. I mean, so to the extent that I think people make a big deal about, just to move things back to leaving aside the question of group differences, even when we're talking about, you know, individual differences within a group, there can be this kind of casual idea that you know, well, if we find that it's genetic, it's bad somehow. Right. Um, whereas if we find that it's environmental, that's, you know, good news somehow. 
And I don't agree with that framing for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is because whether we're talking about early childhood environments or we're talking about you know, the non-shared environments, serendipity, chance, developmental noise, in my mind, both the genes that you're born with and the social conditions, culture, family, neighborhood, that provide the context in which you grow up are really forms of luck in our lives. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, one way to view the twin literature is in terms of what do twins tell us about the heritability of things? But another way of viewing the twin literature is to say, okay, well, how different are identical twins, right? So given that someone has been born with the same DNA sequence, absent some, you know, post-conception mutations and the same, you know, social position at birth, how differently do they end up? And that's the part that I feel like we haven't really grappled with either in terms of thinking about the roles of genes or environments. Because if you look at the twin literature in that way, what you see is that for things that we really value, say educational attainment, or physical health or mental well-being, that the difference between individual twins, what's left over after you take into account their both genetic luck and environmental luck is, is really low. You know, we're talking about identical twin correlations of around 0.8 for educational attainment per se. Right. So I, you know, I think we, we project out to, oh, well, we're, you know, the coming onslaught of genetic data means that there's going to be new discoveries about the role of genes in group differences, and we need to know how we're going to handle that. But I don't think we need to project to some future set of scientific results. We have scientific results now that suggest that genes in combination with environments are these sources of luck that really short shape people's lives. And I don't think we've developed a sort of coherent language or way of thinking about the policy implications of that. But you, you uh, realize who you sound like. Because have too caught up in this kind of like nature nurture thing. Who do I sound like? Do you realize you sound like Charles Murray here? I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, I like, I think this is, I mean, Charles Murray knows this. I think I, um, you know, I've had this, this interaction with him on Twitter is, uh, you know, he definitely has talked about this as a role of luck in people's lives. I think where I differ pretty substantially from Murray is does, does that genetic luck in particular pose bounds on our inability, our ability or inability to intervene? Does it have implications for kind of what we should expect from social policy? I think I differ from him on that. And also, I think, you know, it's one thing to say, and, and this is a statement I agree with, and this is a statement that you've made on your previous podcast before, that like, we need to, you know, peel apart something like intelligence away from human worth or genetic variance associated with intelligence away from human worth. I think it's another thing to not just pay lip service to that idea, but to think seriously about like, what does that mean in terms of, of what a society will look like if we, if we really take seriously the idea that, you know, intelligence might be valued, but it doesn't make you more valuable. What social policies yeah. Yeah, yeah. proceed from that? And so, I mean, I think I've written about this before that I, you know, I think what part of why Murray is someone who is still talked about and has been so relevant 
um, is it's not just that social inequality doesn't go away. It's that I think, you know, I don't think he's wrong about everything. I just think he's wrong about some things. But thinking of genes as luck is definitely something that I agree with him about. Well, again, I, I just want to clarify what difference may exist here with our default hypothesis, because it would surprise me if we really view this differently. So do you imagine that if we segmented groups every which way, plausible and implausible, and studied their differences with respect to our hundred traits, we would find in most cases that they had identical means? Oh, that's a really, you know, if I actually had to put money on a bet, I would, I think my bet would be that, you know, to the extent they are differences, they are, you know, I think it would mirror what we see for group phenotypic differences in that, you know, I think Robert gave this example, Robert Plowman gave this example on, on his podcast with you, in which, you know, you, you see male-female differences in, you know, spatial rotation ability, for instance. But the magnitude of that difference is so overwhelmingly swamped by the magnitude of variance within group. Yeah, again, which is something that I, obviously Murray always admits and we reiterated on that podcast. I mean, there's, there's no question, but I just think that there's no reason to assume that groups, however we define them, are going to be identical for everything we care about. I mean, that just seems like an incredibly dangerous assumption. Yeah, I also think there's no reason to assume that the extent that we did see differences, that they, you know, in terms of genetics associated with things we care about, that they would necessarily, this goes back to our, we don't know the sign, that they would necessarily correspond with the direction of phenotypic differences that we see in the world. So again, I, just to be clear, I'm not assuming that genes are the cause or the sole cause for these differences. I mean, it could be environment, but again, that just pitches you into the troubled waters of now talking about differences between cultures or parenting styles or, you know, social conditions, which in many cases can seem, you know, politically invidious and therefore charged. And there's just this basic fact that uh, I think you and I share this aspiration that we want to cancel all the causes of bad luck or the disparities in luck that we can cancel, we want to cancel them. So by definition, this is, you know, short of genetic engineering, these are environmental changes. We want to give everyone the best possible schools, the best possible socioeconomic conditions. We want parents to be as psychologically healthy and stress-free as possible with abundant free time to lavish their care on their kids. And we want that good luck spread as, as far and wide. Everyone should have great health care. But the reality is, is that if we accomplish that and we achieve something like a utopia environmentally, then the only differences between individuals yeah. and groups will be explainable in terms of genetic differences. Yeah. That will amplify genetic inequality. So I think, one, you're totally right about that. And I think that's a really counterintuitive point which is that, you know, we see that in reality often that some of the best resourced environments where the mean is highest are also the ones in which inequalities based on other characteristics, sort of pre-existing characteristics are exacerbated. And um, Steve Cece has a great American psychologist 
article from maybe 15 years ago now saying it's, it's called the rhetoric and reality of gap closing. And he's talking about this with regards, not specifically to genotypes, but with regards to educational interventions that, you know, so many educational interventions are pitched as we're going to close gaps between high performing or low performing students or low income students and high income students. But when those interventions are universalized, they tend to increase you know, the average level of performance, but also the variance gets wider. As a counterexample, if you look at disparities, again, not necessarily by genotype, but by income in student test scores, the school districts in America that have the, the lowest socioeconomic gradient also have the lowest mean. So we are, I mean, I think you and I share the the commitment that we don't want a quality of outcome by virtue of leveling everyone down. And that there is this kind of counterintuitive finding that if you, you know, if you give everyone a kind of a high resource environment and it's uniform, it's universalized, the remaining source of differences are going to be genetic and and that's going to be genetically associated inequalities. I think where people tend to, they tend to stop there. What I'm interested in is thinking about the various steps on the causal chain from genotype to something that's a very kind of so far out there social outcome like wealth or income or Mm. employment right and i think where people often miss is that we can make potentially different choices about about how much we want a quality of outcome at different points in that causal chain so for instance, we might say we're not interested in everyone being equivalently good at spatial rotation ability. What we're interested in doing is finding the kids who have the most potential, however that's defined, for good spatial rotation abilities. And we are going to lavish them with, you know, the most, the most educational resources possible because those are the people most likely to make you know, scientific and technological improvements that help everyone in society, right? Like we're not interested in equality, we're interested in, in, in maximizing the performance of a few people. But then we can say, okay, well, there's this connection between spatial rotation abilities or mathematical abilities and how far you go in school, right? And this is where you see that, you know, what affluent parents do is they, they don't necessarily increase their kids' SAT scores, but they do drag them through university education, right? So we're just sort of like raising the floor for everyone, even if they're not particularly, you know, all that great at school. Mm. And then we have the relationship between something like education and do you have access to healthcare, right? Like, do you, you know, given our current labor market with employer-provided healthcare, and so I think that we can make different decisions about kind of like our equity efficiency trade-offs at different points in that period of time where we can say, well, what we want is we want to maximize these abilities, but we would also want to live in a society and we're like, even if your spatial rotation abilities suck and you're not going to get a PhD in STEM, you still have, you know, some control over your schedule and access to healthcare. And so I think being more imaginative about where society could potentially intervene at every step of that causal chain is, I think, what's often missing from our dialogue around genetics and inequality. 
Yeah, well, also what's missing is a conception of what matters in life beyond one succeeding in, in, in a specific career or one yes. uh, making a, a massive contribution to intellectual knowledge or wh whatever it mm -hmm. is. I mean, so like, I mean, yes. just to take a, a local example, you know, to my own life, it's like I am, by all appearances, profoundly unmusical right now. I, I'm sure I did not get the best exposure to musical training as a child. I'm sure I did not grow up in a house filled with music and musicians. But I'm also pretty sure that I got enough exposure to music and to to musical instruments and to friends who were playing guitar and piano and all of that, so that if I had the innate ability to become a great musician, I would have found it by now, right? Mm -hmm. But at no point would anyone have placed their hopes for a breakthrough in rock and roll styles or anything else on me as a child or an adolescent or as an adult. But at any point along the way, I'm sure my life could have benefited by my discovering whatever aptitude for music I had and enjoyed playing a, a musical instrument, however ineptly and hopefully non-professionally. So to say that, you know, everyone should have fun playing music and be able to appreciate music, this is just an intrinsic good that we want to spread around as widely as possible. And we know in advance that somebody's going to be Jimi Hendrix and somebody's going to be me on the guitar. And mm -hmm. we know in advance that audiences will care about that difference and that, you know, vast sums of money in a free market will be lavished upon someone who can be the best guitarist in a generation. And probably no money at all will be lavished on someone like me, but I'll enjoy playing the guitar if I take it up to whatever degree, and that's fine. Yeah. So, and, there, and there's no there's no notion of ultimate moral worth attached to this single variable of musicality, yes. even, no matter how much we enjoy Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, which is partly why we can talk about genetics and musical ability, because it's, you know, it's stripped away from these notions of human inferiority or superiority. So I, there's a couple things that come to mind with, with, with that example, which I think is great, which is, you know, part of the reason that doesn't bother us in the same way to say that genes influence how musical you are and exceptional musical talent is really rewarded in the market is that your ability to participate in political life, in economic life, in social life is not dependent on you having a certain level of, of musical ability. Whereas I think Anne Case and Angus Deaton and their, their new book, Deaths of Despair, they talk about this a lot, mm -hmm. about the ways in which non-college educated, particularly non-college educated white men, you know, they're, they're, they participate less in the labor market than they used to, but they, they also have less of what I think you would consider you know, things that we want people to have, right? Like they report greater levels of pain. They they are more likely to die by suicide or alcoholism. They're less likely to report happy marriages. And I think there's this emphasis when we talk about social policy, as if our social policy should all be about making kids as good at the cognitive skills that are valued in formal education as possible. Whereas I think what's missing in that is many cases, we don't care about whether or not, you know, 
our children are the absolute most mathematical genius children out there or ourselves is what we want them is we want them to have full happy lives where they can participate in the economic and political life of this country. And it is, it is that connection between cognitive skill and education and the ability to have good things that I think is honestly is the broken part of, of the U.S. right now or a really broken part of the U.S. right now. And I think, you know, our conversations around how people are genetically different would be different if we could remember that it's not, it's not a necessity that we pin things like, again, having access to healthcare to having a certain level of education. We don't have to make that choice, mm. right? So, you know, I think reframing it in terms of like what really is what is the thing we're really concerned about equalizing here? Are we concerned about equalizing IQ? Or are we concerned about equalizing the sort of things that people currently in the US are much more likely to get if they've succeeded in formal education, right? And I think in many cases, we're concerned about the latter. The last thing I'll, I'll say on that point is that when you talk about like, you know, you, you benefited from having the opportunity to learn about music and learn how to play the guitar even if you weren't the best musician well, sort of no no you you read too much into my uh oh. <laughs> my bio there no I, I i did none of those things my point was that had i had a budding Jimi hendrix yeah. somewhere in my brain that aptitude would have been discovered by my environment despite the fact that i, I did not have a musically rich environment in any sense had there been a guitar anywhere in the room, a Jimi Hendrix would have found it, is my uh, hypothesis. Yeah. So, I mean, I think having, you know, thinking about it in terms of what, how do we, how do we afford children with a rich enough, the psychologist David Licken referred to it as a cafeteria of experience, with hmm. a rich enough cafeteria experience, so that the, the genetic diversity that does exist in our population can be actualized. Thinking about that as our policy goal, I think is, is more useful than thinking about how can we, you know, bring about a world with exact equality of outcome. Yeah, well, so you and I totally agree there, and I think we totally agree with Murray there. Whatever specific policies we might debate among ourselves. I know Murray now is committed to UBI, which I'm a fan of, at least in the abstract. I'm sure there's some surprisingly bad incentive it, it could create for us. But, you know, I would definitely want to experiment with UBI. But the basic goal for me would be, again, to cancel disparities and bad luck in every way we can, all the while understanding that given a marketplace of human priorities and, and human values and the inevitable disparities in which individuals who nominally belong to whatever groups will be able to cater to those priorities and values with their work. So you'll have great guitarists and great mathematicians and very tall people and very short people and all of it, given just the contingencies of culture, those things will be valued in different ways. You know, we're not going to wake up in a future where the shortest possible people are the most valuable for basketball, right? It's just, if you care about basketball, you know, unless you redesign the game, you're going to be caring about people who are taller than average. And 
it's just I think we can completely defang the political serpent here, which seems to suggest that the reality of human difference is very dangerous territory. That's the change we have to figure out how to make, and that's the difference in, in our experience in, in talking about this issue. Again, I think there's very little we disagree about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, how do I, how do, do I personally, as a scientist who does work in this field, and how do we as a field, as in, you know, as we talk about this, change the conversation it, it, away from one in which genetics and genetic knowledge is seen as necessarily leading to the justification of inequality. And I think, you know, critics of but who who thinks this that work? But like, but a lot of people think that. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but wait a minute. Let me yeah, just ask you. But but what do you mean by justification? You know, if, if we told most people that a specific child was born with the genes for a specific aptitude that guaranteed success in that thing, and that thing is is wildly remunerative, right? You know, let's say it's this person is going to be the the next Mark Zuckerberg, and it's just, he just won the genetic lottery. And another child has no advantage like that, and is guaranteed to struggle in more or less everything he attempts, given the nature of our society. Who thinks that's fair, or justified, or, or I'm not sure what you're claiming? Yeah, so I... Well, I'll give you a, a concrete example that you can use the next time we talk about this, which is, you know, Sean Bradley, who was a NBA basketball player, and he's seven and a half feet tall, and he sat next to a geneticist on the plane. Have you heard this story? No, no. And they, you know, they got to talking. I'm sure that even in first class, it was very uncomfortable for him to be on a plane at seven and a half feet tall, and. The geneticist was like, well, have you ever been genotyped? Like, do you have a rare variant that's associated with abnormally large height, abnormally tall height? And they genotyped him. And it turns out that he just is very, 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 very high, like 10 standard deviations above the mean and the polygenic score for height. So it's, you know, all the same variants that might make you a little bit taller than your brother. He, you know, he just has all of them. And so, you know, so he gave an interview about the results of the study for the Wall Street Journal. You know, the the reporter was talking about, you know, how he's had this successful basketball career. And we can think about, you know, how much money has Sean Bradley made in his life? In large part, not entirely, because not all people are good at basketball, but like, you know, um, necessary, but not sufficient because he got this just genetic windfall of height increasing variance. And so I think when people hear that example, they don't think, oh, my God, it's it's so unfair that he got paid more as a basketball player when he's, he didn't deserve being tall, right? Like we kind of recognize like this is why we pay people to, you know, who are extreme uncertain dimensions of, of human characteristics. But I think if we, if you had that same example and it, it wasn't Sean Bradley, it was to go back to your thing. It was, you know, this this child is going to be a genius versus this child is going to have a learning disability. I still don't think that 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 bothers people that much, right? I mean, if you say this child has 
a, a rare genetic disorder or a trisomy, for instance, and they're going to struggle in school cognitively because they have Down syndrome. Like people don't think of that as, as all that particularly frightening. I think we're, in my experience, giving talks about this issue and, and engaging in the scholarly community, it's when you're talking about population trends, where if you say that like on average, people who are upwardly socially mobile relative to their parents, you know, or have greater numbers of these genetic variants compared to people who are downwardly socially mobile. That's where people get nervous. And I think where they get nervous, and again, this is just kind of my subjective experience from interacting with, with audiences giving talks on this, is, is it's the, their fear is, does this mean that there's nothing we can do to help people in poverty? Does this mean there's nothing we can do to, you know, increase the amount of education obtained by someone born into a poor family? And so when I say there's this fear that it's going to be used to justify inequality, I think there's this fear, and when people hear about genetics, that it's going to be used to say, well, there's nothing we can do. Like the genes will win out. We all might as all, you know, might as well all go home now. And that's that. What they're afraid of is this kind of passivity and pessimism about the possibility of change. Right? Like they look around and they say, these things don't feel fair or right to me. I I see people suffering in my life. Is this geneticist telling me that? There's no alternative way of, of being. There's no alternative, like things couldn't have been different because it was in the genes. And I don't right. think I'm saying that at all. I mean, I like definitively do not think that that's true, but I think it is so wrapped up in our narrative, like in the kind of pop culture narrative around what it means for something to be quote unquote genetic. Mm. And so, you know, I'm personally interested in you know, if we're going to harness the tools of the DNA revolution to improve people's lives, then this idea that genetics is necessarily dangerous and antithetical to social policy is a real barrier to that goal. And so how do we change the conversation away from, from that perception, which is really sticky in people's minds? Yeah, so I completely understand that concern, and I think this is this opens to this larger concern that's often aimed at Murray, I think unfairly in the end. Again, I haven't read all of his books, but I've read at least two of the big ones and, and spoken to him, as you heard on my podcast. So I think he's been miscast here to some degree. But the concern is that insofar as we find any group differences, I mean, this is true for groups, I guess it's also true for individuals, Insofar as we find differences between people and feel secure in the knowledge that these are largely accounted for by genetics, and I guess this concern also touches Robert Plowman's notion of, of the unshared environment, or insofar as we understand that there's environmental contributions, but they're the sort that we can't control because they're not systematic, the fear is we'll throw up our hands and decide there's no reason to spend any more money on these particular kids because they're doomed to work at Walmart or do something else that doesn't require much education or much enrichment of their environment. And so let's just put them on the track 
point them at trade school or point them toward, you know, a, a retail environment and just, you know, wash our hands of the problem of uh, real disparity in quality of life from birth onward. I mean, honestly, I, I don't actually know Murray's specific policy positions at the moment uh, across every question we might ask here. I, I know that he's committed to UBI, and, and UBI, I think, is just one way of, of trying to cancel these differences as efficiently as possible, all the while knowing that we don't yet know how to solve many specific problems, even if they admit of a solution, right? We don't actually know the intervention that will put everyone on the best possible footing for everything we care about. But insofar as we do know those things, I think well-intentioned people generally want to do all of those things. Even though I have no apparent musical ability, I think most people would want me to have access to music at every point along the way, because music is enjoyable, even if you're not Jimi Hendrix. And so it is for, you can multiply that by a million for the most disadvantaged people in our society. We want to engineer some tide upon which all boats rise. And the more wealth and innovation we create in our society, the more we want to spread those benefits around. And what exactly that will look like is as yet undetermined, right? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, if by we, you mean, you know, well-intentioned people want children, regardless of who they are and to whom they were born, to have rich, good educational experiences and safe neighborhoods and clean water. I think where a lot of people might differ is, you know, if if you are living in a low-income community in America, is your lived experience one in which you feel like other people want you to have good things? That that that, you know, the powers that be, whoever they are, really are interested in in you and your family living your best possible life. And so I think it can come across as a little a little naive to say, well, of course, everyone wants good things for kids, because I don't think that's everyone's lived experience. On a, on a kind of slightly different note, I think where, you know, when thinking about... Um, Can I just respond to that charge of naivete? The real question is, what is the cause of all of these disparities, right? So like, the problem politically at the moment is, when you're talking about white-black differences in American society, right? Differences in outcome, differences in, you know, inner city crime, differences in wealth inequality, all of it, that anything that people could care about. The only acceptable answer in many quarters to account for these differences is white racism or systemic racism, right? Institutional racism. Some holdover effect from slavery and Jim Crow and a, a failure to see it that way, just reflexively, is synonymous with being a racist or being unaware of the depth of racism. White fragility. I mean, the, we're having this conversation at a moment where the best-selling book in the country is white fragility, right? So to be doubtful that white racism accounts for all of these disparities, you know, white racism, again, in the year 2020, right? Not to be in any doubt about the ugly history of racism in America, but to be in doubt about whether racism explains the number of shootings we're going to see in Chicago this weekend and the fact that I can predict with something like 100% certainty that most of those shootings 
will be black-on-black crime, right? Is it white racism that explains that? To have doubt about that will cast you as a malevolent imbecile in many, many quarters now, and you risk reputational destruction. And the only safe space is to say, oh, of course it's white racism, right? That's the problem we got to solve. And that is such a stultifying and frankly dishonest place to be intellectually at the moment. And it's closing down conversation on dozens of important topics. And it puts us in a position, insofar as we're fighting from this trench, right? We're all just hunkered down against all possible future insights in this spot. It is deeply unstable because we will find out things differences among groups, again, now speaking widely about all human difference among all groups, and differences among individuals that are simply not amenable to a politically correct analysis. And I mean, again, just there's this inconvenient fact that we have these differences between Asians and whites, right? So if white racism accounts for every possible difference between whites and blacks at this moment in society, is there pro-Asian racism that's accounting for the, the fact that whites are performing so badly on IQ tests? That's hard to argue for. So I, I think, oh gosh, there's so, so many things that could be said about, uh, about your comments there. I, I think where I want to go with that is just to, to, to go back to what we were saying right before we ended up on this, this particular you know, thread, which is, the extent to which it's so easy to fall into genetics as the enemy of equality. And I think one, one subtle way that that can manifest is to pit, well, it's either racism or white supremacy or its genes as, as, as causes for behavior. And that if it's, you know, if it's not racism or white supremacy, if it's genetics, then our, then our, you know, I think often the implication, I'm not necessarily saying that you're implying this, but I think often is the implication that, that people are drawing is that our possibility of, of bringing about social change is, is lessened. Um, whereas I really don't, I, I really don't, I think of it as you know, there is a genetic lottery that gives us different types of bodies and different types of brains. And these are distributed in ways that we don't really understand across socially defined groups. And then we have social and political and economic systems that translate those different bodies and brains into the outcomes that I think ultimately we really care about. Like, do people live a life that's free from the specter of violence? Do they live a life where they you know, fulfill, like can learn in peace. And, and so in my mind, I think, you know, you could both, you know, to go to the example of violence, you could both have a system that has been set up, you know, historically to the benefit of white people and people's temperaments are refracted through that system. And even if there is a genetic origin for impulsivity, or even if there's a genetic origin for, you know, pick, pick a human trait that doesn't obviate the responsibility to think about how, for whom is the system working and is it not working? You know, fundamentally, I, 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 you know, like I've been heavily influenced by Rawls and mm-hmm. yeah, the, that thought experiment of, you know, 
if I had been born in a different spot, you know, in the multivariate space of, of genetic, genetically influenced emissions on those hundred things we care about, if I had been born in a different spot, would I, you know, if I hadn't been born, you know, to middle-class parents with good verbal and spatial rotation skills, but if I had been born in a different phenotypic space, would my, would my sense of, well, how this system is fair and, and is it working to, to maximize, like, my well-being in life, would it still be that case? And so this is why, you know, I really find that is it white supremacy or is it genetics? Like really a false dichotomy. Just to be clear, I I wasn't drawing that dichotomy. I'm just saying that the only, and again, I'm not, I'm genuinely agnostic as to the role of genetics on this particular question, right? And it, it could absolutely be I'm going to take one hypothesis that we we haven't mentioned here. I mean, let's just say that there's lead in the water in our in, inner cities, right? And yes, and that's which there <laughs> and this yeah. is you know across the country. And African Americans are disproportionately exposed to lead from you know utero onward, right? An environmental effect, utterly unfair. We would expect it would have negative consequences. So it's totally within the bounds of possibility. Again, I'm not talking about the science. I'm talking about the conversation space. The only safe opinion to have on this topic is there are so many fucking white racists or there were so many racists yesterday who built our institutions that that is the answer. That is always the answer. And if you're going to demur there, even slightly, you're in a game of speed chess against some super artificial intelligence designed to detect your racism. And every sentence out of your mouth is either serving to confirm or however hopelessly trying to disconfirm this growing assumption that you are a racist for imagining there could be any other cause in the clockwork here, environmental or genetic, right? That's our default position in journalism, in science, in politics on the left. It's producing a massive backlash on the right. I mean, to some degree, this is the attitude that is giving us the insanity of Trumpistan, and it's infecting everything, right, on many other topics. But it's creating a crazy Orwellian space on the left of center that I have a very good perch from which to appreciate. Because, again, it's like, just take this conversation. It's being moderated by somebody who will not be named for fear of being associated with not your side of the conversation, my side of the conversation. Your side of the conversation is completely without risk. Yeah, I mean, but, but, I, <laughs> yeah. But it's only without risk until you make some discovery in genetics that can't help but be seen as politically toxic, right? And you can't control whether or not you make that discovery. I sort of, I mean, without risk. I mean, I think like this, the, the, the role of, I mean, obviously this is a discussion that's happening on a lot of levels and a lot of arenas, but you know, what, what is cancel culture and science and, and how has it affected people's careers? It's something that I've thought about personally. You know, I, I, I think the, the interesting the interesting, it's it's very striking 
hear someone describe sort of my positions in science as totally without risk. Comparatively speaking, yeah. I, I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't say. I mean, although, I mean, I like just to, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a personal example. And I, you know, this is, which I think is sort of instructive about how I think, you know, I, I, how I've thought through the issues that you're bringing up, which is to what extent are certain topics taboo? How do we decide where the consequences for people? You know, I mean, I have to just choose one example. Like, you know, I, I spent an enormous amount of time applying for a grant, which was reviewed very positively and all the scientific advisors on it, um, were, you know, review board on it were like, this is a really solid proposal. And then it was, you know, turned down at the 11th hour and actually the program canceled by the foundation that it issued the call for proposals because they didn't want to fund anything relating invariant DNA sequences to behavior. Mm. So if you were studying epigenetics or if you were studying gene by environment interaction, that was okay. But anything that was, you know, I want to study genetic main effects. I want to, I want to study. Amazing. Amazing. And so I, I, you know, I definitely like, so when I hear like, it's not without risk, I think, you know, it's, it's, let me clarify yeah, it because I, the, go ahead. I, I need to clarify that it's so it's comparatively it's w without risk given the, the political framing you're giving to your side of the conversation. But the fact that you're even working in this field, right, exposes you to the same risks that I'm talking about, right? Just the fact that you're yeah, interested in I human mean, genetics. I think, I mean, I think, I think the idea, just the idea that there are immutable over the course of your lifespan DNA sequence differences that matter for socially valued human outcomes remains in some aspects of the social sciences to be a really tender idea. And so there is, there is the danger of someone saying, you know, this just makes me really uncomfortable. I'm not, I'm not going to fund it. So on the one hand, you know, when I hear about cancel culture, I can't say, well, that doesn't exist because I've, ex you know, I've experienced that myself in terms of, in this case, laboring, you know, on this like 25 page tome because they said money was available. And then they were like, well, money is not available for this. And not because it's not scientifically good, but because we are worried about any genetic main effects. On the flip side, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going back to like, well, what, you know, if, if you are, as you are, if you're the sort of person who thinks that part of your, part of your role is to lead the conversation, change the conversation, and change the quality of discourse. And ultimately, my goal is, you know, I think I think the DNA revolution can help people's lives and can help so make social science better. Like that is, I really truly believe that. And if that that experience made me think, okay, well, I I am I am re I'm reevaluating where the work is, what work needs to be done here. Like clearly, I'm hearing some banging. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. I'm, I'm banging on the, <laughs> the desk. I'm talking with my hands even though I'm yeah. not on video. You can't, um, you can't punch me. You know, That's I, one of the benefits of this not being in person. <laughs> oh, no, it's not, it's not about punching. It's yeah. more about, I'm just, I, I really feel passionately okay. about this. And so I think where I, where I go is not, let me bemoan cancel culture. It is, what what is being missed 
on the part of this audience in terms of me reassuring them about potential harms? How can I think more deeply about potential harms that I haven't thought about? How can I communicate this more carefully? And so that's, but you know, to some extent, I think that yeah. move is the ineffectual and therefore wrong one. I mean, ultimately doomed move. The, the move that we have to make is to argue for the primacy of intellectual honesty and the political commitment to justice. Rawls is a great reference point. I don't think he captures everything that we care about, but he sure captures a lot. We want a deeply fair society, and which we know we can't guarantee identical outcomes for everybody, but a wealthy society like ours should be able to guarantee total political equality and you know really good lives for the normal range of people. You know, there, there will be people, yes, whose parents get run over in the crosswalk when they're leaving the hospital, right? And orphaned from the first moment of their lives. But even in that case, we want to figure out how to raise that child to be the happiest possible human being they can be, right? So we can be committed to that society without lying to ourselves and other people about what we're finding in science or being afraid to look at really interesting and potentially important things for fear of what we might find. Now, my one caveat is, and I've issued this caveat on, in many other podcasts, I totally acknowledge that there are types of knowledge that we have good reason to not want to seek, or having sought them, however purposely or, or inadvertently, not want to publish as broadly as possible or at all, right? So, like, you know, the fact that the recipe to weaponize smallpox is apparently somewhere to be found on the internet, I think that's a bad thing, right? We don't want that. You know, one question I had for Charles Murray, for which I don't think he gave a great answer, I do have this question of, you know, why look at group differences at all? Why spend any time on this at all looking for differences between groups? You're like, what's the point, right? But the problem is, and this goes back to my big picture concern, however we try to steer our attention, we will be ambushed by results that will surprise us in the degree to which they can be made to seem politically toxic, right? And again, the result I talked about with Ezra Klein was this you know, Neanderthal result, the fact that, mm -hmm. that most people on Earth, you know, as you said, have 2.7% Neanderthal DNA, but people who can trace their lineage directly back to Africa, which is to say most black people at the moment have no Neanderthal, right? So my point about that was that was just a hilarious piece of trivia when that result came out, and many of us tweeted about it, and I tweeted something snide aimed at the world's racists. But had that result been different, that is, had black people been the only people to be part Neanderthal on Earth at this moment. You know, worldwide, I, this m might have had no effect, but in American politics, right, this would have gone off like a nuclear bomb, right? This would have been endlessly celebrated by white racists, and it would have destroyed the career of any scientist or journalist who stumbled on this fact. And I'm just saying we cannot leave ourselves hostage to that roulette wheel, to mix metaphors painfully, because there's no controlling these findings. I could easily think of 
a finding that could happen, you know, adjacent to your lab, which if your colleague or you talked about it, if you had a podcast, even in the context of your discussing it, unlike the Neanderthal example, I could come up with an example of something you could talk about for which you would foresee absolutely no political implications, but someone else would find them, and it would be the end of your career. And completely divorced from your intentions, your interests in the subject, anything else, that is an unsustainable place to be. So I, I agree, definitely agree that you know, the reason why we do science is because we don't know how things are going to turn out. And, and also that, you know, results that turn out one way strike people is hugely problematic, but not in a different way. And I also, I mean, I don't disagree with you about the, you know, the insisting on intellectual honesty. I don't, I think of both and. I really think that 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 value is very important, but I also find it very important to listen to people when they say, I'm worried about how this idea might be used to harm me or my family or my neighborhood or my group. So, you know, something that happens a lot when you do genome-wide association studies these days is you know, we, we write these long FAQs trying to kind of describe, like, what is this? What is the study? What does that mean? And they can be really, at a time you're like, okay, with every study I'm writing a, like, you know, this is why this is not eugenics, essentially. But then I stop myself and I think, you know, I want to do this work. I chose to do this work. I do this work because it matters, because it gets at some of the most core things that we, we care about, about, you know, human life. And so as much as I think it's important to say, you know, I've done a genetic study and look, these DNA variants predict, you know, your likelihood of being fired from work, um, to give you an, an example of a, of a, you know, a coming attraction. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's very important to be, <laughs> I think it's very important to be able to do that work. You might want to genotype yourself in the current environment. <laughs> but I also think that my responsibility to listen to people when they say this is why I'm worried about this. This is why I think it's potentially harmful and to take that seriously is is also there because I've done that work. So, hmm. I guess I would say I wouldn't I don't disagree with what you're saying about the value of, you know, intellectual honesty. But I don't, I don't think it's the only thing I value in this space. It's not, it's, it's, you know, in some way it's like, you know, let's be precise. Let's be honest. Let's make sure that we are, are telling the truth about what we think the science says to the best of our ability. And let's take seriously what people's concerns are about those ideas and how can you work to to mitigate those fears. I think all of those responsibilities exist side by side. In the broad strokes there, we totally agree. I think we have a kind of Hippocratic oath to do no harm in our intellectual lives. But this is very fast moving in the current environment, right? Like, So you can suddenly confront a tsunami of backlash in response to something that you've got almost no time to process the concerns because the concerns are already in the process of canceling you. And they're being promulgated by people who 
are drawing conclusions that are simply not necessary from the data and certainly are not contained in your interpretation of the data. I mean, again, it's tempting to think of, a, of an example here, take it to another topic so we could see it with fresh eyes. But I mean, this could come from anywhere. It's like, here's one I thought of. Let's say you have a podcast and you invite a colleague mm-hmm. on who's studying executive function, you know, through, you know, the tools of neuroscience, right? So doing neuroimaging work on, on the frontal cortex. And he's also studying moral responsibility and moral intuitions and, you know, just higher human cognition. And he's looking at frontal lobe networks that govern all this. And he reports a finding on your podcast that, um, you know, lo and behold, well, you know, we've had this general assumption based on very little data that the frontal lobes of the human brain don't get fully myelinated until you know, people are 20 or 25. But it turns out there's a normal distribution for this. And there are kids who have fully myelinated frontal cortices at age you know, 11. And when we test these kids for cognitive function and moral responsibility you know, and being able to take other people's points of view and all of this, notions of fairness, you know, understanding Rawls's original position, they perform as well as adults. Now, I just made this up, right? Mm-hmm. But this would be a completely fascinating finding and totally worth talking about, and it would just drop out of the data, right? No one's looking for this, and all of a sudden we find it. Now, can you imagine anything going wrong for you or this person in the aftermath <laughs> of that conversation? I mean, I feel I can like, think of two yeah. points that would be raised that would be every bit as toxic as what we've been talking about or what's happened to Charles Murray. Yeah, I mean, I can too. I mean, I, mean, I what, but what do we do with that? I mean, I think... Well, I'll tell you, but in, in case yeah. people <laughs> lack our imaginations, the two things that occur to me is an Ezra Klein type will publish a series of articles saying things like, this is part of a dangerous history of holding children responsible for crimes as adults, right? And even prosecuting them under the shadow of the death penalty, right? So kids have been sent to the gallows for the last thousand years in various cultures on the assumption that they were guilty in the same way as adults for various crimes. And your scientific research just gave us a basis for that, at least a statistical basis for the ethics of that, and you know, hence your cancellation. And another completely unrelated charge could be raised to say that, okay, you've just given the pedophiles of the world an alibi, right? The pedophiles have been telling us that their victims aren't in fact victims, but they're consenting partners in these sexual relationships. And you're telling us that some percentage of kids can actually consent at the age of 10 or 11, right? What kind of monster are you to be talking about these things, right? This is so awful. And it happens in five seconds on Twitter now. And this is not going to stop. The thing that we have to anchor ourselves to is the importance of intention, right? Like in this case, the scientist who's doing neuroimaging work, what sort of world does that person want to live in? Why is he doing this work? What is he hoping to achieve? And is it really about empowering pedophiles and the people who want to see kids sent to the gas chamber for their crimes, right? Presumably not. And that really has to matter. And until we can break the spell of recrimination and crazy extrapolations from what people say they actually intend with their work, 
again, we're going to find many more Charles Murrays of the world who have to spend 25 years trying to prove they're not racist monsters and who still can't get up on a stage at a college and have a normal conversation about a new book that is unconnected to the old one without the threat of violence. So, yeah, I mean, I like the, the extent to which social media reactions can be swift and surprising and also that people can can read in intentions that that you that you genuinely don't have. I, I mean, I agree. I mean, I've been in the, the that position before, too. I think the situation that you've just described, however, in which a scientist is, is surprised by a finding and it, it is surprised by the fact that it's controversial, right? Because when you're in it, you're like, well, this is, you know, this is the thing. And it's not until you kind of take it to the broader audience that you can kind of get out of the monkey cage enough to, to, to see how this is being perceived more generally. But that situation is really the exact opposite of the situation that Murray is in, in which there is no scientific finding, you know, that's definitive. And he knows full well it's controversial, right? Like it's like the the inverse of that scenario. The second thing that I I always think about is, you know, it's really easy to think about the ways in which when you're the recipient of that, you know, whether it's being criticized in Vox for your podcast or your grant, you know, not being funded to think about the cost, you know, the cost to you of I've engaged in, you know, I've engaged in talking in a way that I felt like was intellectually honest about science. And now there's been this, this backlash against me. I think those are easy to recognize. What I'm always wondering for myself is how does that also play out to my advantage? You know, so I, I think I'm hurt by controversy, but I think it would be naive of me to say that like my career hasn't also been helped in ways because I talk about things that are potentially, you know, controversial, like genes in relation to intelligence. And so I think where a lot of these conversations about, it's so salient to ask, like how think people can be hurt by these swift reactions. But I feel like it doesn't do it doesn't portray the whole story sometimes of how people sometimes are advantaged by that controversy. They seek it out. I mean, I think Murray is a great example of someone who knows full well that this that, you know, he's kind of running ahead of the science, raving this right flag, this red flag of controversy. So Uh, let me just demur there, because I think, again, you're exaggerating the degree to which he's running ahead of the science. I mean, he's saying he's agnostic. He's making completely anodyne claims of confidence with respect to the role of genes and environment. It's just safe to assume that both are involved, but who knows? We are awaiting the results of you know, an ocean of genetic research, and eventually that tide will come in. Whatever is true, we have a, this larger problem which he is focused on around the cognitive stratification of our society. And there, you know, race isn't even his main concern at all. I mean, there was only one chapter on race in The Bell Curve, Mm -hmm. and his subsequent books have not focused on race at all. He's just been focused on his cognitive stratification generically. And so you could run the same analysis just on white people. It doesn't characterize kind of the center of gravity of his attention to say that he's been profiting from what he knows to be a radioactive topic. And I 
can just tell you from you know having touched many radioactive topics, there are people who are provocateurs, mm-hmm. and you can tell them they're people who whose whole angle is to say the unsayable and to find mm-hmm. some way to make a career out of that. You know, Ann Coulter or you know Milo Yiannopoulos, they strike me as that. And you know, I detect an impressive lack of intellectual honesty in these people. It's not their honesty that's getting them there. It's they're committed to a kind of performance art. They found their audience, and now they're pandering to a specific demographic because they figured out how to make a career out of it. In my case, that is just simply not what's happening. And you know, my interests and my social concerns are taking me wherever I'm going. And I've created a an ecology of intellectual relationships and a platform from which I can have various conversations that has left me unusually immune to the ordinary pressures that get people mm-hmm. to, to not tell you what they're really thinking, except in private, right? And I hear from these people in private, you know, scholars whose names are, are well known to you, who will say one thing to me in a private email and never say this thing in public. It's just not worth the hassle, right? And that is not a healthy situation because these are well-intentioned people. I'm not talking about closet racists who want to express racism in private. I'm talking about people who are just as committed to social equality as you and I are, but are being hemmed in on all sides by what they perceive to be various third rails mm-hmm. of discourse now. And again, it's like it could happen to you on any topic. Yes. And I mean, it, it's crazy. True. So, I mean, I think just to just to reflect that, I mean, I don't this is something that I personally struggle with with my own work. You know, there's there's what I truly believe in terms of my political commitments and my moral commitments. And there is what I truly think could be accomplished with genetic knowledge towards those ends. And then there is how my work to say that, you know, genes are related to intelligence or sexual behavior or crime, how that work reverberates in the game of telephone that is, you know, media and social media. And to what extent, I mean, this this gets to a very, you know, much bigger question than, than, than um, anything that we really talked about today, which is to what extent am I responsible just for what I intended to happen? Versus to what extent if my ideas and my work are, are, are braided into a narrative that is harmful to people, to what extent do I bear some responsibility for that? And I don't have a good, I don't have a clear answer to that, but I, I, it's something that I think about and I want other people to also be thinking about in, in their work. Let me give you my answer because having thought about this for a while, because I've been accused of being yeah. on the wrong side of this. I have a very strong intuition that you are responsible for your intentions and for your failure to not continually clarify them when seemingly bad outcomes arise. But it can't be an endless demand because anyone can make any use of anything, right? People can chop up your quotations every which way and use half of them to mean the opposite of what you said, right? So it's like mm-hmm. you don't have control over even the, the uses to which everything you say is put, and you certainly don't have control over specific findings that you just honestly report, right, that have no 
necessary connection to policy or politics until someone invents one. Mm -hmm. It's like you could find a gene for some trait of, of no interest to anyone today, but five years from now, it's suddenly super interesting. And it really matters who has it and who doesn't. And yeah. then you're the person who found it. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, the actual situation is much harder, which is that there, you know, there is a connection, an imagined connection to, to policy for genetics that I don't agree with, and, right. but that I, that I know exists. And so to what extent that the work is doing the science versus to what extent it's and I think, again, this is an and, communicating the science in a way that contributes to changing the conversation away from that, that I think really imagined sort of pernicious association between genetics and pessimism about the, right. the possibility of improving, improving people's lives. So, Well, I would encourage you to do that. I, mean, I, I think that's important to do. And then we haven't even talked about all the ways in which this is going to potentially turn us in a Gattaca-like direction, <laughs> right? This has yet to be discussed. Well, you have to have me back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm very glad uh, we did this, and uh, there is a lot more to talk about. So let's just consider the channels of conversation open. And um, if I get something wrong in the future, I trust you'll let me know. Well, this was, you know, the time really flew by, and you you raised a lot of interesting points. And I'm just really glad we had a chance to talk through so many of the, I think, the big ideas that are raised that people are grappling with scientifically and culturally right now. And uh, thanks to our moderator, who um, didn't have a very hard job, but um, did the heavy lifting of getting us both together. So the uh, mystery man or woman will uh, remain disguised. But uh, just know that this is the kind of conversation that you know, I'm always looking for reasons to get off Twitter and never come back. And <laughs> yeah, me too. I originally thought that you know our recent collision was going to be yet another data point in favor of my doing that. Had I not been on Twitter, I never would have seen your tweet, and I would never would have been provoked by it. But I consider this a successful mending of a weird rift. So um, props to Jack Dorsey and the cesspool that is Twitter. It is the best of times. It is the worst of times, Twitter. Thanks again, Paige. Well, thank you very much, Sam. Have a good day. Bye.